0: Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN's Nurse Leadership and Innovation Training Program, Clinical Scene Investigator Academy, with information available at aacn.org forward slash academy. Now, here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barden. Connie Barden, and I'm thrilled to get to speak today with Dr. Marion Altman. Marion is a clinical practice specialist here at AACN, the American Association of Critical Care Nurses. Marion, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Connie. I'm very excited to talk about a topic that you are a super expert in, and that really is about change and how we create change in the healthcare environment, specifically on units And more important than all of that is how we make it stick. So uh, I know this is something you're just uh, really expert at. So first question I have for you really has to do with this constant change that we feel like we have all the time in healthcare and hospitals. And we do it all the time, whether it's in the organization level, the departmental level, even at the unit level. And I think change isn't so much the challenge, but how to make it stick. So let me just ask you, in your opinion, because you've done a lot of this, you are a leader in creating change and getting people to have it stick. What percentage of change projects fail and why do you think they do?
1: Connie, it's amazing that 70% of all change projects fail. It boggles my mind because we are constantly, as you noted, having change in healthcare. Everything that we do is constantly changing. New technologies, new devices, I think one of the first things that you have to understand is the failure rate is so high because our brains are not wired to embrace change. When our brains sense change, we actually flee from it. The fight or flight actually kicks in. And so when you say the word change, most people experience lots of emotions and they range from fear to anxiety to hostility, even depression. There are very few people that when you say the word change or we're going to have a change, feel happy, right? And so I think because of that, a lot of change fails because we're not paying enough attention to the what's in it for me. I call it the what's in it for me. It's the human factor to change. And you really have to understand how is this change going to affect the person and take that into account as you're rolling out whatever your change initiative is. You've got to help people see the positive effect of change and how it's going to really help them and that it's not going to hinder them. And there's no need to flee from it or feel hostile or be depressed or worried about it, that it really actually is a good thing. And there's lots of tools that you can use to help people experience this acceptance of the change. The other causes of change, I think, are lack of clarity sometimes people just aren't clear about what they want to change or the why. And that goes back to the what's in it for me for the person. You've got to be crystal clear about your why. Some people think that they can just change, just roll out a change and it's all people are going to do it because it's top-down change. We told you to change, now do it. And that's not going to work either. Neither is education. Um, You know, change isn't always about education. It's about processes and helping people move and enact their human agency. Sometimes it's about poor communication and that goes back to the what's in it for me. You have to be very articulate and very specific about what's in it for that person that you want to initiate this change or enact the change. Sometimes change is implemented in isolation so they're not considering what else is going on in this unit or with this person that you want to change. That's very very important because Not only are there lots of change initiatives, but the units that we all work in are all microcultures, right? And so there's lots of things going on in perhaps one intensive care unit or one progressive care unit that may not be happening in its sister unit. And so that's the other thing you really have to think about is you can't just come in with this change. You have to really think about what's going on in that unit. So it's a little bit like the what's in it for me, for the person. You also have to consider the what's in it for that unit. And then sometimes people think that because we've rolled out this change, we're going to have success. Like, bam, we're going to, it's going to work. We're going to get good numbers next month, or we're going to, it's going to happen, whatever it is that we wanted to do. And and it doesn't always work that way. You know, it takes a while to ingrain a habit into a person. And so it's not going to happen overnight. I think one of the last big causes that I really want to mention is sometimes people declare success too early. And just because you get a good month of data, then the next month, if they have an incident or whatever they were trying to prevent occurs, then everybody feels very bad about it. Oh, we failed. We didn't do a good job, right? And so then that does not pave the way for success. So you really have to make sure that you don't declare success too early. It really takes several months. You know, when you look in the literature, it takes 21 days to ingrain a habit. Whenever we're all trying to do something, whatever it is, you're trying to exercise every day, you're trying to eat healthy, quit doing something, whatever. It takes 21 days for that really to become part of your world. Now, translate that to nurses. Nurses work three 12-hour shifts a week. So 21 days really is two months. And there's still that barrier. They're only working three days a week. So it's only three out of seven days that they're really faced with this change that you're trying to enact. So it's going to take a while. You cannot declare success too early. And in fact, I think you really can't declare success for at least six months.
0: That is a very sobering perspective. And I think a lot of what you touched on really is sort of this human side of change. I wrote down, actually, our brains are not wired to embrace change. You know, that's something to think about. So we've got to create new pathways almost to embrace change or get buy-in. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of the programs you've led and been involved with, but um, you've seen tons of units having change. What are some of the things that make a difference in units that really thrive with change versus those that aren't quite as successful?
1: Well, I think the difference in units that really thrive with change are that they're preparing a very stable foundation for their change. And we in the AACN CSI Academy, the Clinical Scene Investigator Academy that I work with change with staff nurses across the United States, we actually use a few tools that I'm hoping to share with people today to give them some ideas of how they can take their change forward. And one of the first concepts that we use, it's not really a tool, it's a concept, but Edward Deming, he was a psychologist and he really emphasized the importance of psychology of change that it's people, it's not processes or products that are fundamental to the source of your change. And so you've got to activate these people's agency. And what I mean by that is activating someone's agency means their ability to choose and to choose to act with purpose. So change is hard, as we said, and it takes a lot of courage. So it's very important to activate their agency and help them be successful with their actions. And there's ways to do that. And some of the tools or concepts I'd like to share today are things like being a change agent. How do you be a change agent for your unit to help lead this change? What about using a change theory and share some of that information or a change management tool? All of those things I think are really key, as well as some other tools, some marketing tools that we employ as well. So I think it's some of the strategies that you employ really make some units more successful than others. But the main strategy just goes back to what I said before. They're really focusing on the people and how do we activate their agencies to help them be successful? Because no one comes to work to do a bad job, right? No one wants to be a bad nurse or be that nurse that no one wants to work with. No one wants their patients or their families to have a bad outcome. People come trying to do the right thing. We have to help them do the right thing by removing all the obstacles and giving them all the tools to help them move the change forward.
0: Let me ask you a question, Marian. because there's a phrase that you're using that I'm not familiar with. You've talked a couple of times about activating people's agency. Can you say a little bit more about what that means? That's
1: Deming's theory that when you activate someone's agency, that gives them the ability to actually choose to act with purpose. So you've given them all the tools that they need. You've removed all the obstacles, and you're allowing them to actually initiate the change and all the aspects of it and be successful with it and be recognized for it. And so that's what it means when you're asking someone to activate their agency. It's helping them move forward.
0: Makes perfect sense. And then, of course, another term that you use that I really want to dig into is the concept of a change agent. First of all, let's just start with how do you characterize a change agent and how can someone develop the skills that you need to be a good change agent? That's a great question, Connie. A change agent is someone who has the
1: ability to energize other people. They have skills in human relations. And by that, I mean typically they have pretty high emotional intelligence. They also possess what I call integrative thinking. So they're able to see the big picture while focusing and dealing with the other parts of the system. And then I think the fourth characteristic of a change agent that makes a really good change agent is their ability to be flexible. We all have to be flexible, especially when we're implementing change, because as we like to say, life is just one PDSA, right? It's just one do, plan, do, study, act, PDSA. And it's just that continuous circle there. And so the flexibility to actually say, this was our plan, we implemented it, we measured it. And now, gosh, when we measured it, it didn't go exactly how we thought it would go. And so you need to be flexible and let go of what your original idea was to then move the action again and go through the cycle again to see if it's going to come out the way that you expected this time. That's one of the things we say in CSI Academy, that life is just one continuous PDSA. I
0: love that. You know, I want to pause a minute and give you a little bit of time to talk just a little bit more about this CSI, the Clinical Scene Investigator Academy. Tell us a little bit about that. What's the... Uh two-minute summary of that, and tell us why you love it so much. I love the CSI Academy because
1: it gives nurses who are working directly with the patients the chance to learn leadership skills, as well as the change concepts to make change that's lasting on their unit. It's changed for the benefit of maybe it's the nurses that work on the unit, perhaps it's the patients that come to that unit, and maybe it's just the systems within the unit. We've had CSIs focus on all different kinds of projects and you can learn more about the CSI Academy on the AACN website at www.aacn.org CSI. It's
0: a great program. I certainly know that it is and I know that I've got the leader of the thing right here. So if I come up with some more questions about it, I'm going to tap you with those in the next couple of minutes. But going back to the change agent thing. You know, sometimes it seems there's a bit of a negative connotation when somebody's all cranked up and they want to be a change agent. How can leaders and other uh, folks in the unit help to bring a positive interpretation about change and to support the person who's really being the change agent for a change in a unit? I think that the way that leaders can actually support
1: change and change agents in their unit or even be a change agent themselves are by helping them put into place some of the tools that we use in the CSI Academy. One of the first tools that we use is something called a change management theory. I think that's a great place to start whenever you're thinking about change. It's a structured approach, and it ensures that the changes are thorough and they're smoothly implemented, and that you actually achieve the lasting benefits of change. One of the things we like to say in the CSI Academy is we don't want our change to be flavor of the month right? The ice cream flavor that rotates. We don't want that. We want lasting change, change that sticks. It's important that you use a change management theory because it focuses on the wider impacts of change, particularly on the people. As I've talked about, that's such a key focus whenever you're leading change, the individuals, the teams, but it also helps move from the current situation to the new situation that you're hoping to achieve, right? That change that you envision. Most change management theories are actually made up of a few different steps. And one of the steps is a strategy where you really think about, what is this change that we're trying to achieve? And then the next step is organizing behind the change. And that's a key point that I think sometimes people fail at change because they just don't take enough time to really plan and organize the change. And then the next step is to motivate people. This goes back to enacting their agency. And as we talk about um, one of the change theories, I hope we'll get to talk about the Cotter's change theory here in a little bit. That theory actually gives you some really good ideas of how to motivate people. And we have some other ways that we motivate people in CSI. So I have some tools that I can share with people for that. Teamwork is really important. You know, there is no I in team. One person cannot make a change. It has to be a team. And you really have to think about who makes up your team. That That is hugely important. And then lastly, you've got to measure. Because we all know what isn't measured isn't done. And it's very, very important in the very beginning of any change until you have really achieved that first short-term goal and really the intermediate goal to keep measuring your change. And while that may seem like extra work, it really helps people understand this is where we were. Here's where we are right now, but here's where we're trying to go. And that's really important. People have to have that vision of what are we trying to achieve.
0: That's really interesting. And I do want to come back and dig a little more into the Cotter theory. But before I do, I know you mentioned in CSI and other forms of lasting change that really the focus is on those nurses who touch the patients, frontline, bedside nurses who really know what's going on in a unit. But I don't want to overlook the importance of the leaders on the unit. And I know, for example, in the CSI program, you require, I believe, the buy-in of the CNO and everyone else in that lineup. But thinking really about unit leaders, so many managers these days are thrown into roles without formal training. So how do we help managers or leaders to lead change, be creative, and really be successful in driving change in their units?
1: Change is really all about innovation. And then when you say the word innovation, really, there are no new novel ideas, right? There's very few new, wonderful things that are out there. A lot of times, novel is really built on something in the past. And so that's one of the things that we encourage is that copying is the highest form of flattery. And so we have a lot of change projects already on our website, more than 70 change projects. And we encourage teams to go there and look and see what have other people done? Because a lot of times people think we have this problem, no one else in the world has this problem. When in fact, everyone else in the world has this problem. So it's important to see, well, how did other people approach it? And as I said, you have to always consider the unit's culture because you can't just take a project from one unit and plop it down in another unit. That's part of the reason top-down change or just change in general fails 70% of the time, because it's not a one-size-fits-all. So that's one of the things I would say to the managers is being innovative. I would say using some of these tools are key, and then um, really developing that teamwork. And as a former manager myself, I know that there's not enough time in the day right to work with your team to go to all the meetings to complete all the paperwork that you have to do to round with the patients i mean the list is just endless and so when you really think about well, when am i going to have time to brainstorm or strategize or be innovative or be creative we don't always have time in that and so i think that this is one strategies that nurse managers actually have to do you have to pencil it in you have to block out some time in your calendar to really actually think about this and plan and strategize. And then I think the other thing that you do, you know, as the leader of the unit, it's really about empowering your staff and supporting them to lead the project forward. And so what is it that you need to do for them? Is it giving them non-productive time? And how can you as a manager creatively support that and still be budget neutral? Well, some of the things I did was I was lucky enough that it wasn't overtime until after 40 hours. So I had nurses that were willing to come in on that extra four hours. We had flexible shifts. So in my unit, we worked four hours, eight hours and 12 hour shifts. And so there were always time periods there that you could pull someone out of staffing while waiting for the patient to come or have a quick just in time meeting or plan it intentionally of everyone's going to come meet from seven to 11. And then everybody's going in and staffing it from 11 to seven. Those are just some of the strategies that I think you need to think about. For some units, they have very established shared governance teams. And I think that when you want to lead change, that as a manager, that's where you need to go, to your shared governance group in your unit or your leadership team, whomever you have, your mid-level managers in your unit, to help them learn about what your vision is and then to really brainstorm it. Because I think that's the key, is really getting the ideas from other people. We really highlight that with the CSIs when they are leading change in their unit to really talk to their peers and engage them and say, why do you think it's not going to work? You know, We always call the people who fold their arms and say, it'll never work. We call them Eeyore, right? And so it's really important to go to those people and say, hey, tell me why you think it's not going to work. And then really lean in and listen to what they're saying and and you know, I'm one of those people that sometimes I'm talking as I'm listening, and that's not a good thing. And so, one of the strategies I do is I say to them, I'm just going to write down what you're saying so that I won't forget it and that I can share it with the team and we can think about everything that you've suggested to us. And so, you really want to lean in and listen. And I think that's really important to do in the beginning as you have this idea of well, what do you think about this idea for the change to take it out there to your team. Really lean in, listen, especially to the people that are saying it'll never work." Or a lot of units have people saying, "I've been here for ten years, we've done that three times, it hasn't worked any of them." And it's important to get that history, because you know sometimes you haven't been the manager on that unit for a long time, but sometimes you have, and sometimes I say to people when they say that, it's a different time, and because it didn't work before, it doesn't mean it's not going to work now. So those are some of the things that I think as a manager, it's really about supporting your team and giving them the time to work on their project at intervals and also hold them accountable. We've given you four hours of meeting time or education time, whatever you call it in your organization. And so I want to know, what are you trying to achieve? And then at the end of that, I want you to circle back to me and tell me where you are. So I think it's that accountability there and engagement with the staff that are really key.
0: I know you mentioned Cotter's theory. I'd like to dive into that a little bit more because it seems like there's some specific steps you're really keen on using theory and the tools within it to help make change and make it stick. Can you tell us a little bit more about the theories that you think are most useful in that way? Connie, I love Cotter's change theory.
1: It's been used a lot in healthcare, And the reason I love it is because it's eight steps that are very achievable and very intentional. And so there is this whole foundation that you lay for your project before you even kick it off. The first step is actually what's called creating the urgency for change. And this is the, why is it important? And you've gotta get that out there to people because sometimes people don't know, well, why are they doing this change? They think you're just doing it for whatever and that doesn't activate their agency. They're not gonna engage with you for that. So you've really got to create the urgency, especially I've found in speaking to critical care nurses, And I am going to make a generalization here, but I think we're a pretty competitive crowd. And so that has been successful for me to say things like, we're the worst unit in the hospital for happy. Or do you know that the surgical trauma ICU is better every single month with falls than we are? You know, things like that to to really give them the numbers, give them the datas, and not just the most recent data. You've got to show the trend over time, but this really is an issue. Sometimes it's about money that you have to talk about. And a lot of times we think that's gauche to talk about money in healthcare, but it's a reality. And what I found in dealing with the direct care nurses is sometimes they just don't know how much something costs or the lack of funding that you get for an event such as a never event, right? I'll take happy for instance, because that's a big problem right now with proning patients. A happy, according to the AHRQ, is about $42,000 cost to the hospital that is not reimbursed. And that's a very uh, general number. I'm gonna say it's probably higher than that. They adjust their aggregate numbers periodically, but I'm gonna guess it's a little bit higher than that. So that's almost an FTE for most organizations for every happy that you have. So I think sometimes it's just letting people know why is this change so important, right? So that's the first step. The second step is then forming what's called a power coalition. And this is all about getting your team. Like I said earlier, there's no I in team. So who's on your team? And that's really important to get people involved that not only want to be involved, but also sometimes that need to be involved. And we have some tools that we use in CSI to help you think about who your team members are. One of them is what's called Belbin's Team Roles. That's a test that you can take. If you Google that, you can certainly find that. It's a free test that comes up and everybody on your team can take it. And you can see, how do I act when I'm a member of a team? Because we tend to perform a little bit differently when we're acting solo versus when we're in a team. Another tool that we use is the DISC profile, which I think is a great personality profile. It looks at your strengths, how you interact, and what your different traits are within these four realms. And so that also, if you Google that, it's going to come up. It's a free profile test. And so we encourage all of our teams to take those tests and then talk about it as a team. What's their strengths? And capitalize on those strengths for the project. And similarly, what are the things that they're not as good at? And so if you have someone who's a very low C in the DISC profile, one of the concepts is C, conscientiousness. And so if you have someone who just, they're not about the details, then that's not the person to do some of the details of your project because it's not going to be successful. Really knowing who your team is is really, really important. The third step then is creating your vision for change. This is really talking about what are your short term, intermediate, and long term goals that you're trying to achieve. And we really think it's important to make your goals smart. And what SMART stands for is the S is specific, M is measurable, A is agreed upon, R is realistic, and T is timely. So, is it achievable? in the scope that you have for this project. That's really, really important. And then we say that it's really important to identify short-term, intermediate, and long-term goals, as I said. So perhaps those are three months, six months, and 12 months. That's what we use in the CSI Academy. I encourage you not to take it too short because you got to think back to how long it takes to ingrain a habit. And that's why we think it's key, at least six months of data before you declare victory or that you've had success with this change project. The fourth step then is communicating the vision for the change. We have our teams actually create what we call an elevator speech. That's just 10 or 15 seconds. It varies for who you're talking to, to just talk about the project. What's the project? Why are you doing it? And what do you need from them? And sometimes it's just, can you come to the in-service to learn about the project? You know, it can be as simple as that. We also have the teams create slogans and logos for their projects. And that helps communicate the project to everyone, not just the nurses on the unit, but literally patients, families, other healthcare team members who are coming to the unit, that they can see what what you're focusing on and how are you doing. It goes back to when local rescue squads, they have that thermometer out there in front of their firehouses and the thermometer turns more and more red as they're achieving their financial goals. Well, that's the same thing is true with your project. You've got to let people know, how are we doing? Are we reaching our goals? then the next step, the fifth step, is removing obstacles. And this is a key step. This goes back to those difficult conversations that you had with people that said it'll never work. And then you really have to look around and really assess what are the barriers to people doing everything right with this project that you want them to do. It's not just in the beginning of the project. You have to keep assessing for barriers all throughout the project because our environments are constantly changing. So perhaps the supply that you were depending on for your project is no longer available. That just happened to a team of ours that was working on Happy, and they had to pivot their project for a little bit and they honestly didn't know what happened. They started having happies and didn't know they were out of this particular product and they brought the product back in and then they were successful again. So you really just always kind of have to be assessing for that. The next step is then creating short-term wins This is a really important step. So you can see up until this point, we haven't kicked off the project. So that's six steps before you kick off the project. That's that stable foundation I'm talking about. So when you create these short-term wins, this is all about letting people know how you're doing with the project, thanking people when they're getting it right, and really meaningfully recognizing them. And we spend a good amount of time talking to people that are participating in the CSI Academy of what is meaningful recognition in your unit. Or to the people you're working with, because it's different in the two different units, right? I had this one unit that meaningful recognition to them was on a poster board in the unit. They wanted their name and their picture up on the poster board. I had another unit that I was the manager for that they would have died if their picture was up on the board. They wanted to be recognized in the rounds with the physicians, rounding on the patients, right? Two very different approaches, and you have to realize what's important to the team that you're working with and what will be meaningful to them. So that's another way that you can uh, create short-term wins. And then the seventh step is actually building on the change. That's where you want to use the concept of appreciative inquiry of what's going well with this project. What do we want to continue and what maybe isn't going as well and why? And really think about that. And then the last step is anchoring the change into the culture. And this really occurs after you've met your six or 12-month goals. And you want to say, okay, now we're not going to do as much measurement. People aren't going to be talking about this at every single staff meeting, but how do we embed it into our culture? Well, hopefully it's embedded in your culture along the way because you've done all these steps, but then you also have to think about there are constantly new people coming to our unit. How are they going to learn about the project and keep taking it forward? So you've got to build into how are you going to orient your orientees about this? Or what about if you have, as they call them now, visiting nurses, used to be travelers, now it's visiting nurses? Or what about your float pool? I came from an organization that had a very large flip pool that we used a lot. And how would you educate them about your project? So that's one of the ways that you actually embed it. That's a long answer to your question. I'm sorry, but I think the steps are just so very important. And there's lots of articles out there about Cotter's change theory. And I encourage the listeners to
0: just Google Cotter's change theory and a lot of resources will come up for them. It sounds brilliant and very practical, and you and I are probably both practical to a fault, so it totally resonates with me, and I love it, and I see this as ways to support this Power Coalition, which is another great name for the team. We're getting near our time, but let me just give you a chance. Are there any other tools that you want to mention that uh, can help people as they're working on these kind of projects? Anything come to mind that you want to be sure and mention?
1: Yes. I have several other tools that I think would be very helpful to the listeners that you can easily find when you Google them. The first one is this concept called Steps, S-T-E-P-P-S. It's by John Berger. And he wrote a book back in 2013. The book is called Contagious, How to Build Word of Mouth in the Digital Age. And basically, he's teaching you in this book, how to market. And really, that's what your project is all about, to get people to change To engage their human agency, as we've been talking about all throughout this, it's really marketing what you're trying to do. And he offers some strategies such as making people feel like smart insiders about your project, Um, social currency is what that's called, giving triggers, so those are the slogans and logos all around the unit, making sure it's very public and practical, and then wrapping your project in a story. You know, we all have those favorite patients or families or just even our coworkers that we just love so dearly. And if your project can center around a story that you can give to people to say, here's why we should be doing this project, or as a result of this project, this is the wonderful thing that happened to Mr. Smith, that's key. So that's John Berger and steps. That's a great concept to use. Another good concept, now, this is an oldie, but a goodie. And I know some people are going to say, Marion, you're crazy but we use the diffusion theory, which was created a long time ago back in the 60s by Everett Rogers. Basically what he says is for an innovation to spread, you have to get at the tipping point of a bell curve. And he talks about the people that make up the bell curve. The bell curve is made up of five different types of people. And so you really wanna focus on the three types of people that are on the left-hand side of the curve, the innovators, the early adopters, And getting them involved with the project and really just ignore the people on the other side, the laggards or the people that are like, it'll never work. I'm going to wait you out. I'm just not going to be part of it. Right. Because once you get to the top and you get so many people involved, you then tip over and it becomes uncomfortable for those people on the other side of the curve to not be involved because everyone else is so positive about it. And the third tool I would recommend is to use appreciative inquiry, which we talked a little bit about before, where you flip the narrative and instead of focusing on what's gone wrong, focus on what's gone well with the project up to date and then try to amplify that. The last thing that I would tell people is we use a concept called redosing. Sometimes you just got to kick off your project again and get people all excited about it. Maybe give a little education about it. Maybe give some swag or giveaways that focus around your project just to get people excited. I think all of those steps really help keep your project going and are some tools that will help you be successful
0: as you're trying to lead change in your unit. This has been so great. I've really loved talking with you about this. and You've given everyone, frontline nurses, their partners, leaders, everyone, such useful information about not just starting and creating change, but having it stick. But we have to wrap up. So let me just ask you, uh, last shot goes to you. Any parting thoughts or advice or wrap-up comments that you would make uh, related to this whole change notion? I'd like to share a quote that
1: I share with the CSIs by Margaret Mead. And what Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I think that's so true. That's the mantra we give to the CSIs is that it doesn't take a lot of people to lead change. It needs a small committed group because you're going to get everyone else excited
0: and show that it is doable and that it is achievable and lead the way. Well, I'm excited about it. And absolutely with a dynamic leader like you at the helm of the CSI program or other things, it's no surprise how you are so successful at having change get implemented on units and stick. And thank you for this very useful information, as well as ideas of where to go, the AACN website and some other places to learn more about these theories and how to uh, be effective and get some good change going on in our units. Thank you so much, Dr. Marion Altman, for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, proudly sponsored by AACN CSI Academy with information available at aacn.org forward slash academy. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.